Our loving Father, we come to you expectantly because we know that you're a God who loves to speak and to work, who loves to transform people. And so we pray as we come to these difficult words, these challenging words, we pray that we might be soft-hearted. We pray that we might hear the encouragements, but hear the challenges too. We long that you would be at work in us and among us and through us for your glory. Amen. It sounds a bit like a horror movie, but imagine with me there is a life-threatening, horrific disease that is taking over the entire planet and everyone's infected. And the thing is, it's only you, you, a world-famous scientist, who knows how to make the antidote. You know the ingredients, you know the amounts, you know the procedures. This secret recipe has been passed on to you. And yet you know your time is up. And to make it even worse, other people have started saying, well, they've got an antidote, they've got a recipe. Not that keen on yours anymore, actually. This one looks much nicer. It tastes much nicer. It doesn't actually work. Wouldn't you do all you can to pass on the antidotes for the sake of the planet to the next generation? You would do it carefully. You would do it accurately. You would do it urgently. You you would find someone you trust, someone you can rely on. You'd find someone who you know is going to carry this work on for the next generation and bring life to a dying people. It sounds a bit like a horror movie. But it's not that far removed from where we find ourselves in 2 Timothy. You remember if you were here last week or if you were awake during the kids' slot, that we're listening in on some of the final words from the Apostle Paul as he speaks to his little protege, Timothy. He's seeking to hand on the the baton of gospel ministry to the next generation. And we said it was a message about Jesus that brings life. And there's a huge urgency as he writes. There's an urgency because Paul is on the way out. It's pretty much game over. He's writing from prison. He's pretty sure his time has come. But there's an urgency too because there's false teaching that has come into the church in Ephesus. It's been infiltrated and infected. And there are these new Gospels, but they're not really Gospels. They don't bring life, they bring death. He says it's as if gangrene has started to rot and to ruin this church. Some of these people, they've had their face shipwrecked. So it's a hard situation into which he writes. He says, Timothy, be bold. Timothy, pick up the baton. Timothy, I need to trust you. I need to rely on you. And we're going to tackle the passage for this morning um, as he continues the letter by simply zooming in on verse 8. There it is on the screens. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join him join Paul in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I think this is where you get the summary of the passage 
All the kinds of themes and threads coalesce in verse 8. So we're going to go through clause by clause and use it as a springboard into the rest of the passage. It's a slightly different way of doing things for us at Magdalen Road, but I hope it'll work. I want to say as well that there's a health warning for the passage because it really is convicting. It really is challenging. Paul really does give it to Timothy straight at the start of the letter. First bit, don't be ashamed. I remember as I left university at 18 years old, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure quite what kind of a relationship I would have with Christians at my university, with the Christian Union, with, with, with church. I'd become a Christian as a teenager just down the road at St. Aldate's in the centre of town. I was baptised. My teenage years had been a time of sort of slow but steady growth, maybe two steps forward and a step back. But then came university, time away from family, time away from the friends that knew me, time away from church. It's the church that I knew and loved. And so it was a real crunch time for me. Would I stand for being a Christian? Would I stand for Jesus? Would I follow him? Would I get stuck into church? Would I go along to the Christian union? Would I be open and, and tell people early on? Would I be more of a, you know, a cultural Christian? Just deliberately sort of fringing myself on the edge of the Christian community. Not, not giving up it particularly, but just not taking it quite so seriously. The temptation not to throw in the towel, but just uh, maybe be a bit more half-hearted. But to let the world squish Jesus and shrink Jesus into a, a hobby, an extracurricular activity, rather than the foundation, rather than everything. Why was there that temptation? I guess fundamentally it came down to shame. Maybe if you've just arrived in Oxford or you've just arrived in a new job, you can associate something with that, the temptation just to not take things quite so seriously, not to be quite so vocal. And so verses like this were very helpful for me at that time, the start of verse 8, because... I take it you only say something like that if you are potentially ashamed by it. If you're tempted to be ashamed, then you need that kind of advice. You would never say, I'm not ashamed of this chocolate bar. I'm not ashamed of the blue sky above. You only say, don't be ashamed if that temptation is there. And Paul knows our human hearts. He knows them intimately and personally and he understands why Timothy might be ashamed and he understands why we might be ashamed. There's um, an Australian evangelist called John Chapman, Chapo, um, who died a couple of years ago. He wrote very honestly in a book on evangelism and I found very encouragingly as he said this, He said about himself, he said, I thought there must be something wrong with me and sometimes I even doubted whether I was a Christian because of this fear. This spark of doubt would flare up into a flame whenever I was challenged with a question such as, how many people have you led to Christ? It was a long time before I discovered that almost all Christians were like I was. All Christians are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus warned us that we would be and Paul has to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed. You see what Chapo says? It's normal. 
And in my mind, if evangelists like him and if people like Paul can feel that temptation, then let's just be honest. Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Why? Well, firstly, because of the testimony about our Lord. Next little clause in verse 8. By which he means the message of Jesus. The message of life. Primarily his death on the cross. We're going to be sharing bread and wine in a bit as we take the Lord's Supper together. We need to be honest that, that the world looks at the church, looks at the cross, and we sound weak and foolish. In their eyes, the antidote to the disease looks silly. Many in our day find the gospel laughable. I wonder if perhaps in previous generations that wasn't quite so clear. Maybe it was simply part of the culture. Many, many more went to church. Many, many more went to Sunday school. And many had a grasp of the basics of the Christian faith. But nowadays, with the generation of kids that we have, they have little idea of what Christmas or or Easter are about. The temptation is for us to be embarrassed about telling them. Many of you will know Alex Gould. Um, She works for the Oxford School's chaplaincy. She has an extraordinary opportunity of going into different schools around Oxford, particularly, to talk of Jesus. But when when you ask kids in school, what's Christmas about? The answer she will get is, is it's Santa Claus's birthday. Or Easter has something to do with eggs and chocolate and bunnies. Which means we're starting from the basics, which means it's a great opportunity, but there is that potential as well. For us to be ashamed as they, as they mock us. Because not everybody is on the same page. We just need to be honest. The word Paul uses, the shame word, has connotations of the shame associated with the cross. The shame of being associated with a grotesque method of execution where the most heinous of criminals were killed by the most heinous of means for the most heinous of crimes. A method of execution that saw the person dying being cursed by God. And there hung Jesus, our King. Mocked, stripped, ridiculed, scorned, taunted, cursed, killed. And I'm sorry, that's your message? That, that's what you believe? The message of the God who made the universe, who, who takes on a body and comes to live among us and dies on a cross and, and comes back to life again. And that's where you find forgiveness? And that's where you find true life? Are you sure? That's what you're basing your life on, Timothy? That's what this is all about? Are you serious? In Ephesus, where Timothy was, religious riots weren't a thing of the past. They weren't hypothetical, they were real. You can read that in Acts 19, Demetrius the silversmith stirring up the crowds till the whole city is in uproar. It'd be very tempting just to turn the volume down a bit, wouldn't it? Just to be a bit less vocal. Just to lie low for a while, to... Maybe our message should be less about the crucified king and more about other stuff, stuff that's a bit more palatable. A bit less offensive. Doesn't your heart get tempted to stop making the main thing the main thing? I'm not saying we just only talk about the cross, that the Bible has extraordinary depth and variety and is relevant and prophetic to all kinds of things. 
all kinds of situations. But Paul's charge to Timothy at the start of the letter is don't be ashamed of the message of Jesus. It's especially relevant in our culture of exclusivism. They say it's fine for you to have your Jesus and if that makes life a bit more bearable for you, and that's great. But, but don't keep talking about him, please. And don't keep telling me that I need him. Again, maybe you're just starting out in Oxford. Maybe you're just here. New job, new student. Or maybe you've been here for ages and you know that culture that tries to squeeze you such that Jesus is a nice thing for you to do. But you're embarrassed about telling others. Don't be ashamed. From personal experience, make a stand early on. Nail your colours to the mast as quick as possible. The longer you leave it, the harder it gets. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or secondly, of me, his prisoner. You see, it's not just Jesus, it's not just the message, but it's these messengers too, the people who bring the message. And of course, Paul speaks autobiographically here, because there are those who have stuck with him, but then there are those who are ashamed of him and left him. We saw that last week as we thought about the overview. So you see it in 15 and 16 of our passage this morning. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he's often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they've walked out on Paul, they've had enough. It's too painful. It's too awkward. In fact, he says everyone has deserted him in the province of Asia. That might be apostolic exaggeration. That might be the reality. We're not quite sure. We do know there were some in the household of Onesiphorus who have stuck with him and worked hard and found him and showed him mercy. And notice verse 16, he was not ashamed. Not ashamed of the suffering messenger. Not just a question of shame over Jesus, but of those who bring the message too. And it's striking because even today, Paul divides people. Sometimes you hear of folk who don't like Jesus, who don't like his teaching. But in my experience, it's much more likely it will be Paul that they don't like. He's cold, he's misogynist, he's anti-Semitic, he's narrow-minded, he's unloving. That kind of talk is pretty common. Folk love Jesus, but then there was Paul and he, he invented Christianity, they say. Listen to C.S. Lewis writing on this nearly 70 years ago. It's very relevant. He says this, And the first victory consists in beheading a few ministers. Only at a later stage do you go on and behead the king himself. In the same way, the 19th century attack of Paul was really only a stage in the revolt against Christ. Men weren't ready in large numbers to attack Christ himself. They made the normal first move, that of attacking one of his principal ministers. And everything they disliked in Christianity was therefore attributed to St. Paul. Paul was impeached and banished. And the world went on to take the next step and attack the king himself. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Because who sent Paul? With whose authority did Paul come? Don't be ashamed of the message or of the messenger. 
Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And all this talk of suffering, Paul, I'm not that keen on suffering. I'm not sure why I ought to bother with this. Can we not just take things a bit less seriously? Can we not just tone things down a bit? We'll have a look at 9 and 10. And you see why this message of Jesus is worth it. Paul says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why is it worth standing for? Why is it worth suffering? Because it's a plan that goes completely against the way the world thinks. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're just looking in on Christian stuff. Please, please get this. It doesn't depend on how good we are. It doesn't depend on how deserving we are or our track record or our grades. Do you see in verse 9, it's not because of anything we have done. We could never deserve it. It simply depends on his purpose and his grace. He gives us what we don't deserve and he gives us what we could never deserve and that is profoundly humbling. And that turns the thinking of the world upside down. In a world that says it's all about what you do and you must deserve it and you must earn it, Paul says God's plan is because of his own purpose and grace. And look, it is the plan to fix the broken world. It is the only plan. There is no plan B. It's the only plan that the God of the universe came up with before the beginning of time, grace given us in Jesus. But now that plan has been worked out in time, in Jesus. He's lived and died and been raised again. Why? We'll have a look at verse 9. God the Father has saved us. Jesus the Son, verse 10, is our saviour. Do you see how he's done that? He's destroyed death and brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. Which means for those in Christ, death is no longer the end. Background. Chapter 3 in the Bible. Man and woman walk out on the God of life and in comes sin and in comes death. And yet Jesus' death deals with our sin. And so it deals with death. He takes the punishment for us. And so the power of death is defeated. And here is true life. We've all got the disease. And we all need the antidote. And only because Jesus was raised again can we have true life. And only because of grace. And you see, if that is actually true, not true in a kind of, well, that's nice for you sort of sense, but true in a true for everybody, for all of time sense, 
if it is the only antidote for the disease, then maybe we start to see why it's worth suffering for. Why is it a message that is worth giving up everything for? Why is it a message that we cannot be ashamed about? It is really good news. It changes your world. It certainly changes Paul. Paul was transformed. It, it means, verse 11 and 12, do you see? Of this good news, this gospel about Jesus, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet it's no cause for shame, because I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He's a herald, verse 11. A herald is somebody who comes along with a story to tell. Who comes along with good news, news that changes things. Think, think victorious battle. Think the message, there's a new king in charge. There's a new king who has authority. We're not offering people lifestyle advice. We're telling them about Jesus. We are heralds like Paul. We're not offering thoughts on how you reach God. We are saying, this is news. This is what God has done to reach us. This is Jesus, God's forever King, who has conquered sin and death and risen ahead again and raised to the Father's right hand and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And one day he will judge the world. That is the news. That is why we're heralds. Secondly, he's an apostle, verse 11, which means one sent from someone. He is sent by Jesus with his authority on his behalf. The the title that he uses, apostle, maybe it reinforces the idea of Paul's authority and blessing from Jesus over against these false teachers, over against those abandoning him. Maybe it brings with the idea of going into new places, to new territory, establishing new bodies of believers, new churches. Places like Ephesus. And he's a teacher. Teacher, not just one that spreads the news. Spreads the message of the victorious king far and wide, but one who brings depth and explanation and complexity and rubs it in and answers our questions and helps us work through the application and brings us from infancy to maturity. Helps us to grow up. Become disciples who will make more disciples. It's a hard job that Paul has in verse 11. Three hard jobs. But in 12, we see why he's confident, why he keeps going. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the temptation for for shame, it doesn't come from his ability. It comes from the fact that he knows God personally knows him. He trusts him. Verse 12, he is convinced that God is able to guard what Paul has entrusted to him until that day. It's a slightly funny phrase. Picture is of of giving something to someone for safekeeping for a time, knowing you can go and collect it from them later. And it is slightly technical and complicated and different translation goes different ways. Um, here's the science bit. You can kind of drown it out if you need to. We're not completely sure who's entrusting what and to whom. 
So it could be, as some translations have it, if you've got an ESV here this morning, that God has entrusted to Paul the gospel message. God has given Paul this thing to guard. And so Paul is confident that the news of Jesus will not be lost, but will be passed on and on and on. Or it could be, as our translation has it, what Paul has entrusted to God, that is, he's talking about fruit from the gospel message. It's as if he has people or churches who have responded, who have been planted by the message, and Paul gives them back to the Lord because he knows his time has come. He's on the way out, and so he says, they're yours. I need you to to grow them and to, to look after them. And whichever way it is, whether it's the gospel message that God has entrusted to Paul, or it's gospel fruit that Paul has entrusted back to God, both are preserved because of God's faithfulness, because he knows the one whom he serves. And he knows him not just on paper. It's striking, isn't it? He knows him personally, and so he trusts him. It's lovely to hear a friend recently who spoke of the time when they realised that it wasn't just a question of knowing truths about God, but you could actually know him. Knowledge became relational. The penny dropped. And that changed them forever. And it still is. Paul, because he knows his God, has a confidence and an assurance and a trust. He's a herald, he's an apostle, he's a teacher who suffers, who brings this message of grace, of life to a dying world. And so he says, verse 13, Timothy, it's your turn. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the last bit of verse 8. We do it by the power of God. Because once again, the task sounds extraordinarily daunting, doesn't it? Don't you feel something of that pressure? If this disease is universal, and if this is the only antidote, if that is true, then don't you feel that? Well, the good news is, it's not about us. Because God helps us. So think through your diary for this week the meetings you've got, the stuff you've got going on, the people you'll be interacting with, the people perhaps you, you pray for, people that you'd long to speak of Christ. And know that your diary is his diary. It is his mission. He is at work. He helps us to keep his message and he helps us to proclaim his message. He is with us. And it's striking that as a whole, the passage begins and ends with the Holy Spirit. So we touched on it first last week in verse 7. Do you remember the Spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. And then the end of the passage as well, verse 14, God, the good deposit, the gospel that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And he mentioned it as he introduced the service. It's one of the drumbeats of the letter, 
Paul knows our heart's tendency to panic. He knows how easily we get anxious. And so he is at pains to make us remember that it it is God's message and he is with us. And when you look at the end of verse 13, you see why it is completely vital that he is with us. Because you've got the pattern of sound teaching, verse 13, that we're to keep. But it's not just dry academic preservation of the facts. Do you see how we're to do it? With faith and love in Christ Jesus. Like in verse 7, the Spirit gives us power, love, self-discipline. Verse 13, again, Paul urges the need for love as he ministers the gospel. So do you see why we need him? Because it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. It's not just the content of what we say, but it's the character that comes with it. Naturally, we don't love people. Naturally, we slip into just winning arguments and self-preservation and not losing face and looking good. And yet Paul says we do it with love in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you're going to have to work hard. Timothy, it sounds daunting. There's going to be opposition. It will stretch you. It will stretch you beyond what you can naturally bear. It will push you out of your comfort zone, but you're not alone. You don't have to do this on your own. Timothy, Maudlin Road, this is not all about you. God himself, Emmanuel, is with us. He gives his spirit who equips and empowers and enables. His spirit gives you a love for him and for his people. And so that when you're at the end of your tether and you've got nothing else to give, well, you can do it by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me his prisoner rather join him in suffering for the gospel by the power of God let's pray Our Father, thank you that you do know us. You know the temptation we have to be ashamed. Ashamed of the gospel. You know how easily we pull back when people mock us for what we believe. You know how easily we we don't speak out as followers of Jesus because of the hassle that it will cause us, the suffering that we will encounter. Our Father, forgive us for our shame. And would we know, please, your enabling and equipping in the Holy Spirit to join with Paul and countless others after him and before us who have suffered for the gospel. 
We can't do this on our own, and so we need you to transform us and to change us. Our Father, we're fearful of simply walking away from this passage and forgetting what you've said, forgetting the challenges that you've laid upon us. And so we long that you would do a work in our hearts, that we might leave this place changed. Help us this week to speak for the Lord Jesus, to live for him. We pray that increasingly our identity and our value and our worth would come not from what others think of us, but from what you've done for us in the gospel of grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.